The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Heavy metal suicide. Foreign debts. Homeless vets. AIDS. Big topic. Big topic. Big, sad topic. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru is Billy Joel, our mission is to feed our heads, and our pledge is that together we will learn without ever feeling like we're really learning. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, what should we toast our lobes on today around well, the fire? it's a huge topic, Tom. It is AIDS. And the way I remember it, in the early 1980s, I mean, that was uh, right around the time that I moved to the UK as a young woman, I seem to remember AIDS emerging like a particularly manipulative horror movie. I mean, it had odd, unexplained illnesses, seemingly unconnected symptoms, unconnected populations who were afflicted, a creeping death toll, the pace of deaths quickening, the ignorance about the cause of disease, the fear, the panic, the cruelty. And um, also, like, thinking about the ignorance, my own ignorance, um, joking about it, like, because it was so mysterious to begin with. I remember my friends and I, whenever one of us would accidentally drop something on the floor, the joke was, oh, you know, don't pick it up, throw it away. It's got AIDS because you dropped it on the floor. I mean, just like stupid kids. What was your perception of the disease? You must have been so young. So as a kid growing up in Britain, there was one big national health campaign that all of us remember, Katie. And the tagline was, don't die of ignorance. But it was this incredibly hard-hitting campaign that terrified a lot of kids and probably terrified a lot of adults. Um, But it was inescapable around that time even as a sort of a a lad in his young teens you you were aware this was a huge deal and as you got older and musicians and film stars that you knew started dying of it there was that sense that it was probably one of the biggest things that happened in your life because there was no cure at that point there was no no way of coping with it exactly so to talk us through all of the aspects the emotional aspects as well as the medical and the scientific aspects of it our expert guest today is deborah gold she is the ceo of the national aids trust the uk's hiv rights charity welcome deborah hi hi so let's start with the basics what is aids 
AID stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, and it's a condition that people living with HIV can get if the HIV is untreated and it gets to late stage and it's very serious and it means at that stage uh, somebody's immune system is so compromised that they can acquire a range of different conditions and cancers and unusual infections that can prove fatal. But HIV, which is the infection that causes AIDS, Mm. is completely treatable now. And so for the vast majority of people who can access medication, they will never acquire AIDS. And and what is the origin of this disease? Well, it's still uh, fairly controversial, but it's assumed now that it's another infection that started in animals and was passed over to humans, probably even as early as the 50s and 60s. But then it really wasn't until the very late 70s and the early 80s that it started to kind of grow in human beings and was first seen um, officially in the United States in 1980. So how did people started finding out about it? Was it the communities it was affecting where word started to spread, first of all? Yeah, so... um Probably in many ways, coincidentally, uh, it first started to spread among gay men in America. And because of the fact that that was an incredibly stigmatized group at that time, it was something that was happening very much away from the you know, from the press. It wasn't something that was getting a lot of political attention, but it absolutely was something in the community that gay men were starting to hear about from each other. And it was really something in those early days that only started to be combated by gay men organising amongst themselves to support each other as um, the cases grew and the fear started and people became aware that this really was something and that really happened over the first few years of the 1980s both in America and then you know a year or so later in the UK. So you said it was coincidental that it rose amongst gay men but I thought it was to do with the sexual practices that it was transferred more quickly amongst certain populations. Yes but um It's transferred sexually, Mm -hmm. and as with any kind of sexually transmitted infection, it usually passes between sexual networks. Mm. So at some point, there will have been some kind of transmission that took place coincidentally to somebody that was either gay or bisexual, a man having sex with men. Mm -hmm. And then that will have then passed through those sexual networks and expanded. And then what happens when people talk about gay men being more at risk? Largely, that's just because they're more likely to come into contact with somebody else within that sexual network who also has HIV. And so it passes among those communities. It must have been terribly distressing Uh, if not just horrifying for people in that community at that time and the people who knew them and loved them to be dealing with this disease that nobody knew what it was. I mean, in fact, you had religious groups proclaiming that it was some sort of divine retribution. And can you give us an idea what it would have been like in the early 80s for these people who were confronted with this disease. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a mixture of things for people who kind of reacted in different ways. I think for a lot of people, it was terrifying and heartbreaking seeing close friends becoming incredibly ill, dying with no um, hope of any kind of medication, no chance of getting better. For some people, it was absolutely enraging to see that happening. And yet at the same time, to see no real government intervention, it took Ronald Reagan until the mid to late 80s before he even mentioned AIDS in public. Mm. There was no real kind of organised response. And so 
for a lot of people, it really helped to galvanise them. So it's kind of ironic that it was kind of terrifying and soul-destroying and yet also ironically built community and built activism because what happened was the community had to come together both emotionally just to support each other to look after each other as they were sick and to fight for better health care and to fight against discrimination whilst at the same time attending funerals every week while their friends were dying yeah, and their loved ones were dying. absolutely ripping communities apart and ripping families apart because families were uh struggling with the idea. I guess it would have been the first time that parents had to confront the fact that children were living these alternative lifestyles and having sexual partners that, you know, normally mom and dad didn't have to confront their their children's sexual practices. And so that was a, a cause for a lot of heartbreak, I think, for sufferers as well who were cast aside. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it forced a kind of confrontation that maybe never would have happened for lots of people who'd built kind of alternative families and networks of very close friends and as they became sick and as they campaigned they would support each other they were there you know kind of in the hospitals giving each other physical care emotional care is a generalization but for some people they may have been ostracized from their family sometimes for many years and then in their final days their family would suddenly become involved and friends and partners were prevented from making decisions about funerals sometimes thrown out of shared homes because you have to remember at that time alongside the discrimination that people experienced for having HIV or having AIDS, there were very few legal rights if you were LGBT. Um, And so you didn't have partnership rights as a partner. There was no possibility of marriage or civil partnership. There were no kind of joint tenancies. There was no prevention from being fired for being gay or for having HIV in those days. So people were often living in real poverty and really struggling. So Yeah, it was a difficult time. What I remember being in Britain, because I had just moved to London in 1984, and the HIV crisis was really just mushrooming, um, was just the level of panic about it and also the kind of graphic horror at what was happening to the human body, like how one's own body was turning on itself. And people would always invoke the Black Plague or, you know, the medieval plagues, because that was kind of the only touchstone in all of history that this seemed akin to, where whole swathes of the population were felled by something that was just... uh, so graphic and horrible. What were the symptoms of uh, this disease? So the symptoms were incredibly varied because, as I said, when HIV reaches a late stage, if it's not treated, what happens is somebody's immune system is so compromised that they then can get a whole load of different conditions. So uh, some of the things that kind of lots of people may have got, uh, there's something called Carposi sarcoma, which is a type of skin cancer that creates lesions on the skin. For some people, uh, they would have early onset dementia. So it would affect, you know, their ability to think. Um, There's a certain type of lung cancer that lots of people got. So like kind of real difficulty in terms of breathing, just endless diseases exactly as you're saying Katie so it felt like your kind of body is constantly attacking you mm-hmm. and although doctors could try to treat those different conditions they couldn't treat the underlying cause you know until much much later until the mid 90s Katie so much of the podcast that we've been recording has been about the progress of science and the progress of medicine we yeah. had our episode about vaccine which was about the polio vaccine yeah so it makes me wonder Deborah how 
the world reacts to this new threat because we're used to that point in the, the late part of the 20th century where we overcome things through science and we're conquering disease. So for a disease to come out of nowhere and have such a massive effect was unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. And eventually, in the 40 or so years that we've, you know, kind of identified AIDS as an issue and HIV as an issue, it's been an incredible story of scientific success. But it took a while to get there. And I think it took longer than it might have done had it not been for the fact that the people who were most affected were gay men, people living in Africa, people experiencing homophobia, experiencing racism, who were just not priorities politically. And And also uh, people who use intravenous drugs. Absolutely. People who are injecting drugs. So people who were not a priority politically. And it was a time of real homophobia. And I think that slowed down progress. But even within that, you know, it took only a few years before the infection. HIV was identified only a couple more years before a test was identified. But it It wasn't until really the mid-1990s that the first really effective triple therapy medication was found. And that was absolutely life-changing. At one point uh, at the beginning of the crisis, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in America, referred to it as the 4-H disease because a syndrome seemed to affect heroin users, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. What were the experts getting wrong? What were they missing when this disease first started? So I think there was a lot of misconception about how HIV was passed on, first Mm. of all, and that continues to exist even to this day. You know, we've got really good idea of how HIV is and isn't passed on, but people still, you know, you talked about the kind of jokes that you made when you were very young and that was really normalised, that kind of stigma Mm. around how HIV was passed on. I would say, and certainly on behalf of those activists at the time who were so desperate for hope, that um, they were too slow to allow new medications to be trialled. And that's one of the big changes and the big successes that activists had at that time. You know, they were desperate. They were dying. And their position was, who cares if it works? Try it. You know, don't do these trials that last years and years and years while we're all dying. We want to try the drugs. Mm. So I think they really got the speed wrong and the urgency wrong. And I think they got some of the messaging wrong and that those messaging problems... Um, have really had a kind of long tail effect. And what, that have like, lasted give us until an now. example of messaging problems. Well, you talked about the um, campaign "Don't Die of Ignorance," and that's a real double-edged sword. That campaign, because on the one hand, it was really far-sighted of the UK government to run that campaign. A leaflet went to every single home. It was on TV. It was in the cinemas. It was on billboards. It was everywhere. Anybody that was kind of old enough at that point where I remember it, you know, and I was very young, um, remembers it. And on the other hand, it was terrifying and sensationalist. And I would say if you want to think of two ways that HIV is very often still treated in the press and in the media now, it's about fear and it's about stigma and sensationalism. And that idea that it's somehow this special, especially terrifying, terrible thing that is the worst thing that can happen to you. Whereas, honestly, the improvement, the scientific improvements now are mind-blowing in terms of HIV. And yet, for many people, their idea of what HIV is stuck in 1988 with Don't Die of Ignorance. The thing about that campaign, Katie, as well, was it seemed to both reflect what 
some of the national newspapers were doing, but also add to it as well. So you would find things, wouldn't you, Deborah? I mean, certainly phrases that got bandied around in some newspapers like gay plague and things like that. When famous people started dying of AIDS and contracting HIV, that, in my memory, was a point where it didn't normalise it, but it made some people realise what this disease was really like. Whether it's Rock Hudson dying in 1985, whether it's Freddie Mercury dying in 1991, whether it's Arthur Ashe, former Wimbledon champion, and then the other one I remember is Magic Johnson, who was a massive star for, for the LA Lakers, um, who admitted that he had or, or revealed he had HIV and he was a straight man. And it was yeah, interesting. Yeah, ba- basketball what, hero. Absolute basketball hero, played for the dream team in, in the Barcelona Olympics. So you seem to have this thing, Deborah, where there was all this, as you said, there was this hype and this fear and this terror. And then gradually people began to realise that, yes, it could happen to everyone, but that there were things that could be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's incredibly sad that it takes the death of somebody to do that. But HIV was actually very mysterious and often not a public priority in terms of press. And those deaths were often a time when suddenly there was more information available. And, you know, I can remember I was in the fifth year, which is year something now in New Money, when um, Freddie Mercury died. And I remember really clearly going into school and some of the boys were crying and we had a special assembly where they announced the fact that he died. So, you know, it really was such a big deal that it was something that was kind of dealt with in that way, even in my school. And I really remember the Freddie Mercury tribute concert and how what a big deal that was and what an opportunity that was for trying to share destigmatizing messaging. And then there were also things like Princess Diana opening the first AIDS ward in the UK and kind of going in and shaking hands and hugging people without wearing gloves. And, and that really was an important moment for challenging stigma and trying to kind of normalise HIV. So, you know, there have been points along the way that have helped with that. Yeah, because definitely there was that idea that, you know, practically even just looking at somebody who was suffering from AIDS would uh, transfer the lurgy. So it was transmitted through blood, but not through sex, not through saliva. Is that right? Yes, it's transmitted through sexual contact mainly. Yeah, so um, certainly not touching somebody or shaking no, no, hands. No, 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 absolutely, or... and not through saliva. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So she she did a great thing, and she was uh, somebody who humanized these sufferers who previously possibly been lumped into a category of undesirable. Certainly by religious groups, uh, certain ones who, evangelical types, who were sort of dancing on the graves of these victims and proclaiming it some sort of triumphant will of God. Yeah, and not just religious types. In the UK, James Anderton, who was the chief constable Mm -hmm. of Greater Manchester, famously described uh, people living with HIV as living in cesspits of their own making. So, yeah, those kinds of views, absolutely in religious organizations, but kind of more widely. And in addition to uh, this ignorance from religious groups, there was uh, all sort of twaddle that was coming out of the the tabloids. Wasn't there some terrible headline in The Sun? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of one example was about a vicar who said that he would rather shoot his son than find out that he had HIV. Mm. Um, really horrendous stories. And even more recently, tabloids have, you know, in the time that I've been at National AIDS Trust, have outed people because of the fact famous people that are living with HIV um, it's still seen as something you know kind of sensationalist and exciting and 
ultimately that just feeds this kind of existing stigma, which is really the biggest thing affecting the quality of life now of people living with HIV. So once people were being felled in large numbers by this disease, there were impacts, not only obviously amongst their families, but economically as well. Can you talk about that as one of the side effects? Yeah, well, I mean, an entire generation of people died and that has to have an impact. Um, and it, ha- it would have had an impact in terms of all of the lost earnings and all of the, you know, kind of lost contributions and the, yes. you know, the artwork that was never made and the, you know, the kind of achievements. And then, you know, that economic impact even lasts until today. I know lots of older men who acquired HIV in the early 1980s and they thought that they would die. And so they never had a pension and they never really thought about what their career was going to be because they were just living day to day. And now they're in their 60s or their 70s and they're living with the financial impact of when they were young, not setting up their lives with any kind of sense that they would survive into their adulthood. Yeah, like they kind of wrote them Yeah, absolutely. Tom, you have piqued my interest with that very curious pretzel shape you seem to have contorted yourself into. Can you tell me more? Katie, thank you for, uh, there we go, recognizing my Pilates skills. It's all thanks to Target Pilates, today's sponsor. Oh, well, you know what? I am a huge fan of Pilates because I have been twisting myself into pretzel shapes and straightening myself out from them for upwards of 30 years because, I don't know if you knew this, Tom, I am bionic. I actually have (laughs) strange robotic body parts inserted inside of me, and that is why I need to iron myself out with physical therapy. So please, tell me more about Target Pilates. Well, Katie, Target Pilates is a virtual Pilates studio that's for everybody at any level, even beginners like me, and it's great for all my aches and pains. Katie, I think you know this, but Pilates is medically proven to improve symptoms of lower back pain. So, whether you've never tried Pilates before, want to move more and improve the way your body feels, or you want to step out of your comfort zone, there is a huge selection of resources to choose from with an ever-growing library of over 200 easy-to-follow online Pilates videos. Katie, these videos include, but are not limited to, Mm. quick 10-minute classes. Get in, get out. 30-minute classes with separate easy, moderate and hard options. Going on all the rides. And Katie, a weekly 60-minute session. That's for people who like a commitment. One more thing, Katie. It is a lot more affordable than a lot of in-person studios at just £4.99 a month. And exclusively for our listeners, you can get three months for just £12. So if you'd like to try out Target Pilates, head to targetpilates.online.com forward slash fire. That's targetpilates.online forward slash F-I-R-E and you'll get three months for only £12. Let's talk about the big change that came in treatment, Deborah. So talk us through what exactly triple combination therapy is. (laughs) Okay, so... uh Triple combination therapy is, um, it's essentially the very beginning of effective HIV medication. At the time, it was described as a cocktail because in the very early days, it was actually, you know, people might have to take pills kind of every hour and some of them might be with food and some of them may not be with food and some of them had to be kept in the fridge and some of them didn't have to be kept in. So it was a difficult process to follow, but it was the first time that we had medication that 
really saved people's lives and it's when everything started to change now for many people who require hiv today they may only have to take one pill a day very few side effects and they'll live a normal lifetime one of the things i really remember just as we're talking about it now in the 80s there was suddenly this attention and focus on safe sex so condom usage was promoted um, I remember making some sort of public service type little videos and stuff at the time to promote it. There was always this desperate attempt to make wearing a condom seem really sexy and <laughs> part of the foreplay. And, uh, of course, that was at odds with, for instance, the Catholic Church's approach to contraception. Um, yeah. But uh, eventually everybody had to get on board with that. And that was an interesting consciousness-raising thing because, of course— the knock-on effect was to make young people consider consent as well. I mean, I guess on on the one hand, the good times, the freewheeling, sexual, carefree days were over because you had to really give it some thought and be thoughtful about your partners. But can you talk a little bit about that whole idea of consent and, and safe sex and, and how that changed how people interacted with each yeah, other? Yeah, absolutely. So I think... It's another of the ironies of the way in which, you know, some of those kind of more critical groups talk about um, gay men and the reality that actually I think they're one of the groups that have taken the most serious care of their health and responsibility and were really responsible for promoting the use of safer sex, you know, looking for ways in which you could safely have sex, in which you could use condoms and, and today, you know, kind of other ways that you can protect yourself. And so there were all kinds of brilliant campaigns and things the sisters of perpetual indulgence group of kind of gay male nuns who did all kinds <laughs> of campaigning and i do think that that has really been the beginning of a conversation that continues to this day in terms of consent and really understanding how to ask people and get consent for different types of sex acts that you know yes doesn't mean yes to everything mm. no can happen at any point I think it was the beginning of a cultural shift and it's a cultural shift that we see now when we think about kind of feminism and young girls and things but it's it's a it's an infection but it, it's had such a kind of big impact in so many different areas and another thing comes to mind as we're talking about this that um, another hurdle that showed up on the scene when you were navigating maybe your first sexual relationships was this idea of taking an AIDS test. That was always just this terrifying specter where, well, in fact, I never found myself doing that and I never felt like I needed to do that. But that was almost a rite of passage for some people entering into a new relationship yeah. where they felt like, okay, I need to do it and you need to do it and we need to get a clean bill of health. But then there was always that tick-tock, tick-tock waiting between taking the test and getting the result and um, that was so nerve-wracking. Absolutely, because in those early days, it was weeks between taking the test and getting the result back. Mm. So it really was terrifying. And also for people that you know, knew maybe that they'd been at risk and were waiting for the result, it was, it was a long, terrifying period of time and having to go back into yeah. the clinic to kind of get that result when, you know, in those early days, the impact of that was absolutely life -altering. Well, it was a death sentence. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I'm reminded of a really good friend of mine, another young woman who a lot of her close male friends were gay, 
And she was so paranoid about the disease and not through her own fault, just because there wasn't a lot of information around. And so she was just wondering, oh, if I kissed my gay male friend on the lips, might I be at risk? Or, you know, we hug all the time. And so she kind of got into a little bit of a compulsion of going in and getting AIDS test after AIDS test. And, you know, it was really troubling because it was screwing with her mental health. Yeah. And when you have, when you take a lack of public information and then a layer of stigma on top of that, and then a group of people who are kind of discriminated against, then that's what that leads to. And that kind of sense of worried well, which is absolutely still a thing. And, you know, even today, we often get contacted at National AIDS Trust by people who are terrified that they might have acquired HIV in situations where they're just not at risk. And maybe maybe they've tested more than once, but they're still emailing us saying, might there be a chance? So it's just, you know, it's kind of entered the public consciousness as this thing that is the most terrible thing yeah and you know certainly now that's not the case it was pretty soon deborah that music and art and cinema began to reflect what was happening in creative communities was there a certain film or tv show or a certain musical movement that you think made a real big difference to public perceptions of hiv there was a lot of incredible early artwork But lots of it was kind of within the community rather than necessarily something. So I think for me, maybe the first thing that feels like it reached into kind of wider mainstream public confidence might have been Philadelphia, the film with Tom Hanks, which uh, we look back now and it wasn't unproblematic in its way that it presented AIDS. But it, it was a sympathetic portrayal of AIDS and the discrimination that somebody living with AIDS at the time experienced in terms of employment. And I think it kind of humanised it and it didn't hide the fact that the two main characters were gay. And so I think that was a real kind of touch point in terms of that mainstream consideration of AIDS and HIV. Yeah, that was really important. I also want to talk about the impact of and the reaction to It's a Sin, which was the Russell Mm -hmm. T. Davis emotional and sometimes hard to watch drama series about the impact of AIDS on a group of gay men and their friends in 80s London. And to some, uh, including me, it was an unbearably poignant, almost home movie. But to younger viewers, maybe more of a historical curiosity. What do you think, Deborah, needs to be remembered about that time? Because I think some of this horror and and the the worry and the fear has been a little bit ameliorated by the mists of time. Yeah, I think I think it's so important for people now to understand both what people went through at that time but also how much they fought to get us where we are now that it's not a coincidence that we're in so much of a better position now that happened on the back of incredible science and research yes but also people who were dying whose friends were dying using all of their energy to fight to make this better that series was incredibly difficult to watch but you know, as you say, incredibly poignant. Um, There's an incredibly heartbreaking storyline in It's a Sin about one of the characters, Colin, and what he goes through when he's in hospital by himself in a ward while people are kind of wearing all of this kind of terrifying material and just locking him in a ward. And I think it's important for people to understand what people went through to get us where we are today. Yeah. And, you know, that's important to think about because uh, with the beginning of the COVID epidemic, that was 
kind of an eerie callback to the first surge of AIDS deaths, complete with that whole level of denial and ignorance and uh, kind of a delicious irony that in America, the immunologist Dr. Anthony Fauci was leading the federal response to COVID and he'd been a leading force in the early HIV AIDS research. And then the level of woo-woo was still high in America. You had then President Trump advocating drinking bleach and shining a sanitizing light on your innards to banish the lurgy. And my question to you, Deborah, is what is wrong with people? (laughs) I wish I knew. What's wrong? Like, let's put it more nicely. Such recent history on a deadly pandemic that was brought under control with science and, you know, willpower medications, healthy practices. Why do people still today persist in air quotes, doing their own research? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I knew. Um, And I think the truth is that Lack of information and fear breeds blame. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about those early days of COVID and and all of the kind of the Chinese disease. And, right. you know, it's all about whose fault is it? Right. Um I don't know what's wrong with people, Katie, but something. <laughs> I was hoping I was hoping you'd give me an answer, a clear answer on that one, Deborah. <laughs> so Deborah, where are we today with HIV? First of all, in the UK, there are what just over a hundred thousand people with living with HIV? Yeah, there are over a hundred thousand people living with HIV and there's still, you know, several thousand people that we diagnose each year. But things are very, very different from where they were in the 1980s. So I'll tell you the good news parts. Uh, So now we can test for HIV so easily. There's so many different ways of doing it, but it can be as simple as going into Boots or Superdrug and buying an HIV test, taking it home, getting some saliva, and 20 minutes later you have your result in your own home, you know, just like with a COVID test, so something that's really easy for people. And then the next thing is the medication is incredibly effective. And if you are diagnosed in good time, the tablets are very unlikely to have side effects and you'll just live a normal lifespan. And then one of the biggest scientific developments that we now understand is that people who are on HIV medication, when they reach the point where their viral load is undetectable, which can happen really within a couple of months, they can't pass HIV on to anybody else. And so that means that it's this perfect virtuous circle. If we get people on treatment quickly, then it will help them, but it also is what's preventing the disease. And that's why the numbers are reducing, because the more people get on treatment, the better for them, the fewer people that can acquire HIV. And it's incredible weight that is lifted off the shoulders of people living with HIV, knowing that they are healthy. Um, And then we also have this medication called PrEP, which is a tablet you can take once a day if you don't have HIV and it prevents you from being able to acquire it if you're at risk. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, people who are particularly at risk. So in the UK, those populations more likely to come across HIV are gay men and people from black African communities can get PrEP free on the NHS. And it's, as I said, it's just one tablet a day. And it means even if you're at risk, it stops you from getting it. You know what this conversation makes me think is um, how humans are almost our own worst enemy. I mean, just the power and the force of human imagination, how we were gripped by the threat of HIV AIDS when it first came on the scene. You know, we really took that on board, didn't we? And, you know, it, it's, it seemed so scary. It was just the ultimate bogeyman. And um, it makes me think about all the crazy conspiracies about AIDS that are still around. Like, isn't the former Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro, uh, he's got some crazy line about how uh, COVID vaccines can lead 
to yes, AIDS. Absolutely. That's like that's like a super group of of, <laughs> of monsters. Of mad things. It's yeah. like Godzilla versus Mothra. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and that it's that sensationalism that I talked about before. You know, HIV is just very often the kind of go to reaction is it's the worst thing that can happen to you. Very often the stories in the press are about the very, very tiny number of cases where people are kind of criminally charged for passing HIV on something that we do not think should be a criminal act in the first place. And so it just gives a kind of false view of what HIV is. And that's why things like It's a Sin and the storyline in EastEnders at the moment oh, about HIV. Story? There's a storyline in the EastEnders in which one of the characters has just recently discovered they have HIV. And I think they've been dealing with it really sensitively. Mm. Um, this is the British soap opera for people who aren't like, <laughs> glued to their UK television sets. It's a, it's a big, popular British soap opera. And so, you know, those kind of just dealing with it in a day-to-day way, that really does help to kind of break down that stigma. What else could be done, Deborah, to get rid of stigma? I think it's about knowledge. It's about sharing that knowledge about what HIV looks like today. And it's about fighting against all the stigmas that feed HIV stigma. So that's racism and it's homophobia and it's transphobia. And it's all those things that kind of sit underneath HIV stigma, which is one of the reasons I think why it was so bad um, in the day. So it's fighting against that and just sharing the facts about HIV, how it is transmitted, how it isn't transmitted. And this really exciting news that people living with HIV can't pass it on to other people. Deborah, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming in and telling me, Katie, all the things we wanted to know. And also, I'm just glad to be part of the solution and not the problem, (laughs) thanks to you. So we're passing along all the information. Brilliant. Thank you. It's been brilliant to be here. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. 
These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Well, that is a topic that I did not expect to end on an upbeat note. I was very encouraged to hear what Deborah had to say about developments with HIV survival. Yeah, and if you would like more information after listening to today's episode, please do check out the National AIDS Trust website, nat.org.uk. And like we mentioned, so many incredible shows and movies, Katie, about HIV and AIDS. Mm. They're all out there. We would absolutely recommend starting with Philadelphia and It's a Sin. And if you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media where it spread that fire on Instagram and the Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. And Tom... The next episode could be whack. It's about crack. Fire up those pipes. Or don't. Maybe really don't. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. 
Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.